If you have a Bible, we are in Second Samuel chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. But before we do that, let us beseech the Lord together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this place to meet. We thank you for the, our fellow brothers and sisters. We thank you, Lord, that this is, in fact, your day, a day set aside especially to worship you, to refresh ourselves in the wisdom and understanding and the goodness and grace, Lord, that, um, that we come here together to feast upon you, that we might be renewed, that we might be, uh, Lord, nourished, that we might um, grow in wisdom and understanding, not only uh, in, about you, but about ourselves, about our circumstances, Lord. We come here that uh, our wicks might be relit, that we might go into the world, Lord, um, by the light of Christ, not only to see better, Lord, but to be lights, uh, in a dark world. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for all the rituals and all the acts that we go through from um, beginning to end. And we are so grateful, Lord, that you are here in our midst while we are going um, through, not just through the motions, Lord, but while we're doing this, we're drawing closer and closer and closer to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and amen. Now, um, we occasionally have to stop and consider the fact that there will be blood. There will be blood. This is a phrase that I've used many times, and it is one that I think that we often need to be reminded of. Um, it is a bloody business that we are engaged in just being alive. It's a bloody business to raise children. It's a bloody business to be um, in fellowship with one another. It is a bloody business to know, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, what we're going to be talking about is, in fact, the shedding of blood and, and what it means for us, how, uh, why, and how, and, and what it means. So that is, is just to get you ready. We're going to talk about some bloody stuff. <laughs> but this uh, has to happen from time to time. Right now, we're in the, we're, we have actually come to the end of Samuel. The last four chapters, 21, 22, 23, and 24, is the end. Now, there are six accounts recorded here. They're chronologically detached from the preceding narrative. Essentially, last week, that was the last sermon uh, in the narrative as, it, as it's understood. And the narrative stops and picks up again in the beginning of 1 Kings. So what you have here at the end are a number of episodes taken throughout David's reign that are put together to sort of as an epilogue to sort of summarize everything we've learned about King David up to this point. Not only that, it, 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 it summarizes his life. It summarizes the, the, first, the, the two books, First and Second Samuel. It's sort of like a summary of what we have learned. Now, there is a chiastic structure at the end. Uh, I don't have a diagram of what a chiasm is, but a chiasm is a literary structure where parallel elements correspond in an inverted order. Essentially, it goes A, B, C, C, B, A. And the A's are similar to one another. The B's are similar to one another. And in the center, this is why they use chiastic structures, it tells us what is the most important aspect of the text. So the whole epilogue is broken into, into this structure, and, and they're, they're corresponding. The A sections both deal with a drought and a plague that result from the sins of the king. So we see here the, uh, Saul sins, and there is a terrible thing that comes upon the land. And, and, and then later on, the last thing we'll look at is that David sins, and something terrible 
befalls the land. In the B sections, there are long lists of all of those people who fought alongside of David. Uh, There are many men, uh, many lives that he had a huge effect on, and and we don't just pass through the book and move on to the next section without stopping and considering those men and what what they did. But in the center, the C sections are actually two poems. So one of the poems is lengthy, and it's actually a, just a version of Psalm 18. The other is, is a poem that I call The Sun King. It, it is a poem that's only seven verses uh, and about what the ideal Israelite king looks like. And, and that's how this, this last bit is structured. So what we're going to do is we're going to go out of order. <laughs> I'm going to jump around here in the last four chapters. Um, But I've only broken it down, don't worry, into five sermons. We are really close to the end, (laughs) Samuel. So, But this week, what I want to look at is just 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14. There's one little story here that that opens up the whole thing that at the same time starts to tell us a little bit about what this whole book was really about. Now, in this section, David's early, it's back when David was first king. That, that's important to know right out of the gate. And he was still dealing with the fallout of Saul's reign. So what they've done here at the end of the book is jump back to, to the beginning of 2 Samuel, and they're talking about something that had happened right after David had become king. And it's very much like the opening scene of 1 Samuel. There's an even bigger chiastic structure that I could get into where the beginning of 1 Samuel and the end of 2 Samuel are very similar. You have Hannah and her song. And, and here at the end, you have David and his song. And, there's, and, and essentially what it is, is David looking back and Hannah looking forward, and they're singing at one another. She's singing about restoring the household and bringing a son. And he's at the end of the book singing back towards Hannah that he is, in fact, the son. And, and there is a greater, the son king that will arise from me. And he's sort of answering back Hannah. So imagine this book, if it were personified, would be Hannah on one end and David on the other end singing to one another giving each other hope and encouragement, just the way that the saints are supposed to. <laughs> We're supposed to gather together and, and, and be filled with the word and sing to one another and talk about the glorious things that God has done. And that's how First and Second Samuel is framed. Now, what we have here, it, it, it's further like the beginning of First Samuel, because there is a worthless household who's failed, and it's brought judgment upon the land and its people. Right? Just at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we had Eli and his sons and, and all the damage that was done to the land and the people. And now here we have David cleaning up from Saul and all the damage he has done to the land and to the people. Now David, like Samuel, acts as a mediator, but he now is not just a prophet, he is the priest king. And he restores Yahweh's kingdom through human sacrifice which foreshadows Jesus, the mediator, the priest king, who restores Yahweh's kingdom through human sacrifice. The beginning of the epilogue of Samuel foreshadows the gospel of Jesus Christ. King Saul breaks covenant, and so God curses the land until Saul's sons are hung as an atoning sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. Just as Adam broke covenant, and so God cursed the land until... One of his sons, Jesus, is hung on a tree as an atoning sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. This is one of, the, one of those sections in the Old Testament where it's not a mystery. It's like right there on the surface. They're going to use words like atonement. They're going to hang people on trees. They're going to turn away the wrath of God. And it, it, it's as if, right, this is the gospel according to Samuel. 
is what we have here. And why would they introduce this epilogue at the end of Samuel with this story? Why would they do that? Because that's what the whole story is about. That's what the entire Old Testament is about. That's what human history is about. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this, essentially, in three parts. Okay, the first one is to understand that God has cursed the land under, under David because of Saul's sin, just as God cursed the land for Adam's sin. So if turn with me to 2 Samuel 21. I'm going to simply read verses 1 through 3. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Now, among other things, this narrative contrasts David and Saul in terms of their faithfulness in keeping covenants. Keeping covenant is a big deal. God makes covenants with us, and what he expects from us is to keep them. And when we don't keep them, bad things happen to us, and bad things happen to those around us. Now, you can tell that the narrative at this point has jumped the tracks, because when we last saw David, he was not a guy who sought the face of the Lord to get guidance. He was not somebody who sought atonement for anything, right? He, he eventually, does he, does he go to his daughter? Does he go to his son? Does he go to anybody, in, right? to Bathsheba's family and say, how can I atone for the things that I have done and Israel has done? You can tell that this is an an older story from the beginning because of the way David is acting. This is old school David. This is David at his finest. This is David when he had all of his wits about him and he was serving the Lord faithfully. Now, when Israel suffered famine for three successive years, David presumed that the Lord was trying to tell them something. (laughs) We've been hungry for three years. Maybe God is trying to tell us something. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so here they are in the midst of a famine because God is trying to get their attention, and David is still in a, in a moral and spiritual place where he picks up the phone. God, you have something to say to us. What is it? Now, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 tells us, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God wants to hear from us. God wants to communicate with us. This is what's missing through all these long stories that we've been looking at, David. Right? There is no there's no red phone that goes directly to God's throne room. He is he's ignoring what God wants, he's ignoring what God is doing. And, and God is bringing judgment after judgment after judgment to get their attention. And, and we see this is always what he does. Isolated, difficult circumstances. You, if, you're, if you're walking down to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and you stub your toe, you don't need to get down on your knees and say, God, what are you trying to tell me? Okay? But if you stub your toe and then break your toe the next day, and then the next day you fall off your chair and break your leg, and then when you're in the hospital and they're running you around in the gurney, you fall off of it and break your arm, I would perhaps start to wonder, God, are you trying to tell me something? 
this is how he works, right? We don't want to overdo this, right? I, I, um, my mouth is a little dry right now. I'm not going to interrupt the sermon by seeking the, the, face of, the face of the Lord to determine what he's trying to tell me. But repeated difficulties are usually God tapping on the thing, trying to send us in Morse code a little message. And David, at this stage in his career, is listening. Now, David saw the Lord's face, and the Lord graciously revealed to him that the land was being disciplined because Saul had failed to keep the terms of a covenant made with the tribe of the Gibeonites. Now, during the conquest of Canaan, this is an older story, Joshua was taken in by the Gibeonites. They're one of my favorite uh, Gentile tribes because they're so clever. Uh, during the conquest of the land, they thought, these people are going to kill us. And so what they did is they put on old clothes, and they got moldy bread, and they went to Joshua as if they'd come from far They're like, well, we were just wandering around the world, and we f- just happened to find your army. And they acted as if they had come from far away. And so they make a covenant with Joshua, and, <laughs> and then Joshua finds out that actually they come from just north of Jerusalem. And they were tricking him the whole time. And, and I'm like, good on you guys. Good on you. And so Joshua didn't know what to do with them because what he was supposed to originally do was kill all the people in the land. So if you go with me to Joshua chapter 9, verses 19 to 21, Joshua 9, verses 19 to 21, we read about a covenant that the Lord told Joshua to make with these people. Verse 19. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So they made a covenant with these people not to slaughter them, then found out that they were actually people living in the land, and God forced them to keep the covenant. You've taken these people in, they are now yours, and they became essentially slaves who who worked at the tabernacle. And so they lived amongst the Israelites for a very long time. Now Saul brought the wrath of God upon the land by trying to destroy them. And, and we're not told when this happened. There's, no, there's nowhere in First and Second Samuel or the book of Chronicles that explains this story to us, so there is a great deal of mystery. Why, after all this time, would he just slaughter these people? Now, the, the primary theory, one that I think makes the most sense, is back when Saul had slaughtered all the priests. Remember, he went to the, the, there was a city of priests that had helped David, and he slaughtered everyone there. The theory is that the Gibeonites, who were still working for the tabernacle, working for the Levites, were part of that town and were likely, most likely slaughtered in large numbers. That, that would make the most logical sense, but that is just a guess, actually, an educated guess. But what it tells us is his motivation. Saul is motivated to do this. Why? His zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So he's so zealous for the people of God that he, 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 he slaughters within Israel non-Israelites. Now, the, the, the warning to us here is that we cannot be so zealous for the people of God that we forget our God. God said, told them to make a covenant. God said there will be wrath that comes upon you if you harm them. And so that is more important. Our zeal for that should supersede our zeal for the people of God. How often, especially when we're fighting a culture war, especially when we live in a place like Washington State, does our zeal for our people 
lead us to do things we ought not do. Sometimes our, our justice gets faulty. Sometimes what we owe unbelievers, what we owe in business contracts, what we owe in the social contract gets forgotten very easily because we're zealous for our people. Now, this is something that happens a lot these days. We think, well, that guy's just a pagan. Who cares if I cheat him? Well, that guy's just a pagan. Who cares if I slander him? Well, that guy's just a pagan, so who cares what I say about him and what I do to him? I am zealous for the Lord, and I'm going to make a point. This is a motivation amongst Christians that we have to be very careful of. Our zeal for the people of God cannot supersede our zeal for God. Right? What is, how does he tell us to treat our enemies? In Canaan, Joshua came there, and the Gibeonites were enemies. They ended up, however, making a covenant with them, and, 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 and they ceased to be the same kind of enemy as the Ammonites, say. And so they're a protected class within, within Israel, and, and what does God always tell us to do for, for protected classes? Widows, orphans, the Gibeonites. We're supposed to love them and treat them well. And there are people amongst us Right? We live amongst unbelievers, we live amongst pagans, we live amongst Gibeonites, and we will justify mistreating them because of our zeal for the church. And, and that is something that we ought not do. Okay, we are fighting a war, but it is not an anything-goes war. Right? It's not total war in the sense that it's no holds barred. Right? We, we, Jesus said, don't fight like the Gentiles, fight like my children. And that is something that we need to remember, I think, more often. Now, David, he seeks a solution. He calls forth the Gibeonites, and he uses the word atonement, which means to make amends. Atonement is sacrificial priestly language, and this suggests that there is more at stake here than civil justice. Right? He uses this word atonement, which is priestly language. It's the kind of language you use when you're going to cover shame and cover sins. He's not just talking about equity and justice. The Gibeonites are practically slaves in Israel, and yet we see that the king is humbling himself to serve them, making amends to the offended party that they may bless the heritage of the Lord. This is very humble of David. Right? He, imagine in, in that culture, those nations all around them, the king going to mistreated slaves and saying, what can I do to make amends to you? Right? Imagine that now. <laughs> imagine... <laughs> Imagine the governor of Washington going to someone's house, say who lost their job from the COVID restrictions, and saying, how can I make amends to you? Can you imagine such a thing? I can't imagine such a thing. I can't. Can you? No. But that's what we're talking about here, right? Imagine Obama shows up at somebody's house and say, hey, listen, you know, that Obamacare was really bad for your family, and I heard that you've suffered a great deal from it. How can I make amends to you? Who's going to go and make amends for the... Anyway, the train crash. Don't even get me started. David is showing us what kind of king the Israelite king should be. Okay? He should be a humble one. He should make amends even to slaves. The, the kingdoms of the world don't care about people like the Gibeonites. Just, and what do we see? This is a very Jesus-like moment here. Jesus cares about the kind of people that nobody else cared about in the first century. Now, David was directed to do this by the Lord, but it still, it shows us what a true Israelite king is supposed to be like. Now, there's a very, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but just go with me and let's see if it holds us both up. 
he says, I want to do, his motivation is that they would bless the heritage of the Lord. And we learned last week that the heritage of the Lord are the people of God themselves. Deuteronomy 32, 9. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So David, what he wants, what he's referencing, is the promise that Yahweh made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless those who bless you and honor him who dishonors you. I will curse, or I'm sorry, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what essentially David is doing is he wants to, to, to treat the Gibeonites well, that the Gibeonites might bless the people of God, that God might bless them. Now, that is a great motivation, right? I, I, we, in, in, the, in the nature of the the culture that we're in and, and the fights that we're in, have you ever thought, you know what I want is I want to treat this person with justice and equity and I want to treat them morally because what I want is them to bless us so that God might bless them. Now that's a strategy we don't normally think of, right? When the Christians get together and we're like, what are we going to do about the culture wars? Imagine the guy in the back who says, I have an idea. Let us act so equitably that the, pe- the people we're talking about bless us so that God might bless them. And I don't know about you, but in, right, if I were just at a meeting of pastors and somebody actually said that, I'd be like, put your hand down. Okay, we're serious here. And we're fighting a culture war. David, the, 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 the strategy of his is one that is very Christ-like and one that is very unnatural to us. And, and again, this whole ending section is, uh, David is, is going to, we're going to look back at, at the things that David did right, and we're going to see again and again and again what a true Israelite king is supposed to be like. He doesn't merely want to restore blessing from heaven to Israel. He wants Yahweh to bless the Gentiles as well, but that can only happen if they bless God's people. Now, this foreshadows Jesus' desire to not merely restore blessing from heaven on Israel, he also wanted to restore a blessing from heaven on all mankind. Romans 15, verses 10 through 12. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all pe- the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. We don't want to fight in such a way that we are the... Right? We do not want to be the people giving unbelievers no hope. Now think about what I said there for a second. When we go with the damnation, 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 when we, go with the, when we, we can fight a particular way that causes the unbelievers that we're talking to to have no hope. And, and what David is doing is he's trying to restore slaves people no one cares about, so that that they might receive the blessing of heaven. Now, that they might be converted? That's not his primary motivation. His primary motivation is that God would bless them. And that is what the Lord Jesus wants to do. He wants the nations who don't know him to have hope. What he wants them to to hear is the good news. (laughs) He wants them to receive a blessing. What we often want is we want to damn them. What he wants is to bless them. Now, we ought to fight. I think I've made that incredibly clear. 
But what we don't want to do is dishearten. What we don't want to do is take away hope. What we don't want to do is damn people. Adam's fall affected all mankind, and all mankind must be restored. Our zeal for the people of God must not deaden our hearts to the needs of the unbelievers within our midst. When those outside Christ bless us, God blesses them. This should motivate us to live equitably and justly within our communities so that we might receive their blessing, and therefore we might see God bless those who bless us. Now, Saul's sin of covenant violation results in Yahweh's ravishing the land with a famine. This is similar to the curse of thorns that resulted from Adam's sin of covenant violation back in Genesis chapter 3. I read from Genesis 3, verse 17 through 19. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now Paul reminds us of this in Romans 8. When he tells us that creation was subjected to futility. And put in bondage to corruption referring to the effort, uh, effects of the fall on the land. Adam's fall affected not only the human race, but also the physical world. The cosmos after the fall were not the same. John Calvin comments on this when he says, the condemnation of mankind is imprinted on the heavens and on the earth and on all creatures. Now, we were just watching as a family this beautiful documentary uh, that Nate Wilson made the riot and the dance. And, and, we're, and we're watching this tiny bug in a pond. I, I, I'm a little frightened now of ponds, and I don't think that was quite what they meant. But it's this little tiny bug that actually ca- catches this huge frog and then put, pokes it and puts poison in it and, and, and like puts like digestive juices in there and makes, as they said, a frog-flavored Capri Sun. And I thought, that is, a, that is a dark bit of business there at the bottom of that pond, and I think what I'm going to do is stay inside. But then my wife said something which was remarkable. She said, I can't wait until that doesn't have to happen anymore. And I, and I said immediately, well, it's, of course it's always going to happen. And I was like, wait a minute, what did I just say? <laughs> right? Because in the new heavens and the new earth, that little bug is going to eat salad just like the rest of us. I said it. We'll have Capri Suns, but they'll be fruit-flavored. The world is affected by the fall of Adam. And, I, and we often forget this. The world is groaning to be delivered from what we have done to it. It's yearning to see the children of, uh, of God arise and free it. And so what you have in a, in a, in a microcosm here is this, this famine befalls the land, this terrible thing. Right? What do the wheat ever do to anybody? Right? What did the gravel ever do to anybody? What did the Jordan River ever do to anyone? But here, it, right, how is the Jordan River, if you could ask it a question, feeling at this particular moment when the water level is so low? It's not full with the fullness, right, with fullness like it's supposed to be. And this is what happens to the physical world because of the fall. And I think, you know, one, one of the things that happens because of something stupid like climate change is that we, right, like I was saying earlier, we end up getting this whole thing backwards. 
We get this whole thing backwards. And we're just like, no, give me the gas-guzzling car. <laughs> right? right? I'll pour whatever I want down my drain. I'll flush whatever I want down my toilet. I don't care because those guys are idiots, and I don't believe that we're doing anything at all to the atmosphere. Okay, well, you may not be doing anything to the atmosphere. I agree with you. But you sure are doing a lot to the watershed, right? I mean, the watershed is suffering because you're an idiot. Because you're, you're just you're fighting the culture war, you think, but you're not. So there is a great deal about conservation. There's a great deal about the land that I, I think are conversations we need to have and get the right end of the stick because I think generally we sound like morons. Now, I'm telling you right now, my beautiful 2009 Silverado is not affecting in any way, shape, or form the atmosphere. Okay? But I, I have affected the watershed in, in my own arrogance in ways that I ought not to have. And we need to consider... That, that sin is right. Sin affects the environment, and it affects the entire world. Right? It's not just about you and what you do in private. It's about you and what, what your, how your sin affects the community you're in, and, it's, and it's, it's how your sin affects the world that you live in, one that is supposed to be declaring God's glory, that beautiful book of Revelation, nature. How are we treating it? I, I think oftentimes Christians are like those kids who get a hold of the markers and get a hold of dad's book and scribble all over the inside of it. Because that's what nature is. It's a book upon which we're supposed to read about the Lord. Now, I have a lot of other things to say, so I'm going to move on. Okay? But I, I think that if, if you like Wendell Berry, I, I, I would suggest reading some Wendell Berry, but not the stories. Wendell Berry also wrote essays. <laughs> from a Judeo-Christian perspective, at least, on, on exactly how we ought to be taking care of the land. And if you haven't read those, I, I would suggest that you do. Okay, now back to Saul, and back to what he's done to the world. Saul's sin affects those he sinned against, the Gibeonites, but Saul's sin also affects the land and the people of the land, by extension. Sin does not affect only the sinner. Sin is never, ever, ever a private matter between one person or persons. It is something that is a, it affects the whole world. Now, the Gibeonites know exactly how David can atone, how David can mend this terrible thing that Saul has done. And they explain it in 2 Samuel 21, verses 4 through 9. We read... The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned, planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord." And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mereb, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai the Mahothalite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
Now, as Peter Lightheart comments, sons suffer for suffer the consequences of the sins of their fathers, and the sons must make amends and rectify wrongs. Ignoring the evils of a previous generation is not an option. We must either repent of them or suffer the consequences. This story serves also as a commentary on David's sin with Bathsheba. David's household suffered because of his blatant reviling of God, and the sword of judgment did not depart from his house as discipline for that sin, right? We've seen, this is, Saul's not the only one that this happens to. This happens to Eli, this happens to David himself. Just as Adam's sin affected the cosmos and his progeny, who, who must now atone for their father's sins, so Saul's sin has a generational and an environmental impact. Israel must bear the sins of the now dead Saul. Now, let me just for a moment give some warning. Okay, now it's very important to understand. You are, a, if you're a parent, your sins affect your children, okay? You are teaching them, even now, this week, you taught them in some fashion how to praise and love the Lord Jesus. Simultaneously to that, in some way that you probably don't even realize, you taught them to sin high-handedly, right? Because the, the, we can't, this is what we are, this is what we do. They are watching when we're doing good things and bad things. Now, what we have to do is keep short accounts, not only of our own sins, but the sins of our fathers, Now, I I just want to say, because we live in the age in which we live, what I am not talking about is finding some Native Americans and apologizing for stealing all of their land. Okay, that's very popular. That's very common right now. Our white guilt, right? And and, and I've got to apologize for the fact that I'm white, that I grew up in the middle class in the Pacific Northwest. But I'm not going to apologize for that, actually. I'm going to boast in it, just as you should boast in it. Because God shows his grace and mercy to us in, 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 in the circumstances in which we are born, and it's not something we need to repent of. Now, there are sins we need to repent of, but we have to understand how this works. Okay? There, we, we, should, we should not be setting up commissions to find out what, who was on a ship brought over here back in 1648, find their descendants, and pay them all money in our pockets. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm going to read from C.S. Lewis's essay. He believed, What did the guy not write about? He actually has an essay called The Dangers of National Repentance, <laughs> which is fascinating because in his day, all kinds of people wanted to repent of all kinds of sins of colonialism. That, that, was, a, that was a very fashionable thing in his day to repent of these things, to repent of what the government had done. And, and, and the people doing the repenting had nothing to do with the sins. It wasn't even their fathers who did it. This is what C.S. Lewis had to say. He said, but we have to be careful. The first and fatal charm of national repentance is the encouragement it gives us to turn from the bitter task of repenting our own sins to the congenial one of bewailing, but first of denouncing the conduct of others. A group of such young penitents will say, let us repent our national sins. What they mean is, let us attribute to our neighbor, even our Christian neighbor, in the cabinet, Whenever we disagree with him, every abominable motive that Satan can suggest to our fancy. The communal sins which they should be told to repent of are those of their own age and class. Now, Saul is a contemporary at this point. It's also very important to understand that his, the, the children that are offered up actually served in the military and are likely to have committed the crimes with him. That, that's very important. Remember I said we don't really know the details of it, but if Saul and his household was leading an army and they're out slaughtering the Gibeonites, his sons and his grandsons were likely officers in that military. 
The effects of his failed rule were borne by those who survived him and participated in his sins. His sin affects the land, and some of his family members who participated in the crime are still living. This is not ancient history that they're dealing with. It's current events. They don't need to repent of Israel's sin against the Hivites from Genesis 34. Right? God is not saying, hey, listen, way back in Genesis 34, you guys did some nasty stuff to the Hivites, and what I want you to do is find their children and pay them back. Repenting of national sins should stay current. Abortion is a present sin. I have never, ever in my entire life met an African-American slave. I've never owned one. I've never had a desire to own one. I've never even threatened to do any man-stealing. And I, I frankly, am not going to apologize for it. And, and I think this whole shtick about getting us to feel like we have to is just that, a shtick. Now, I, <laughs> for, for 20 years, I've tried to convince people that what we ought to do, because some of the men who were present at the time were still amongst us, is repent to Japan for blowing up an entire city. I've had few takers on that, but, and we can debate that some other time as whether that's a sin we ought to repent of. But to me, that was something that we still had blood on our hands for. Abortion mills is something we should repent of because they are here in our midst. When, if we're going to apply what is happening here in a reasonable way, in an equitable way, in a God-fearing way, let us actually repent of the sins that we ourselves are part, a, a part of. Like, as I said previously, how many of us are actually doing very harmful things to the environment because we don't actually think we have any effect on the environment? I'm sure that we can find some sins there to repent of. As I've said this before, one thing that the elders of a city are supposed to do is, is to repent of unsolved murders. That is clearly stated in the law of, of Moses. And there, I think the last time I checked, 29 unsolved murders in Snohomish County. I do not care who lived on the land that I live on now 300 years ago. I do care that there is a family in my neighborhood who does not know who murdered their daughter. And so if we're going to have a serious conversation about this, let us have a serious conversation about this. Okay? I am sure my family members all served in the military. I am sure that there are some sins in Afghanistan and Iraq that they were party to that we could probably do some repenting of. Okay? I, however, was never in New England in 1640. Okay? Whatever occurred there, it's really kind of none of my business. Now, the Gibeonites do something quite fascinating here. When it comes time for them to say how David and the people of Israel can atone for the sins, they actually apply the word of God. Now, they have, right, they have been serving in the tabernacle for quite some time. I think perhaps they picked up some theology while they were there. Because it says in number, numbers, numbers, there you go. So comedic relief for everyone. It says in numbers, thirty-five, thirty-three, you shall not pollute the land in which you live for the blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Okay, so David finds out there's a famine because of the Saul's sin has, Saul has sinned. It's affected the land. There's been bloodshed on the land. And, and the Gibeonites are like, okay, you want to atone for it? Well, the only way to atone for it, according to the word of God, is to shed the blood of those who did it. Blood must atone for blood. Genesis 9.6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
But we might recoil at the pagan appearance of this. The execution of the members of Saul's house is human sacrifice, which is what we do not usually attribute to God. Right? That's very pagan. And so some of us are listening to this and we think, well, how, how, is this, how do you work this out? God is okay with them offering up human beings. A normal animal sacrifice has the same atoning effect. We see later in 2 Samuel 24, 25, it says, David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So why not just offer animal sacrifices? I think for two reasons. I think it is because these men participated in the crime and so they are to be executed publicly as murderers are supposed to be. But I also think there's the secondary typological point that God is making where he occasionally pulls back the curtain and reminds us that all sacrifice is human sacrifice. Every animal that is sacrificed in the Old Testament system is, subst- is a substitute for a person. There is nothing but human sacrifice. It's, right? <laughs> we think that it's just animals. But the animals represent people. Okay, and, and, and because people get confused in the Old Testament, even now we get confused, occasionally there are stories like this where the curtain gets pulled back and God wants to remind us that because of sin, a man is going to have to be offered up. A human, you're going to have to give me a human, and you're going to have to give me his blood, and that is the only way that you're going to, to heal the curse that I put on the land because of Adam. All... Israelite, God-ordained sacrifice is a form of human sacrifice. Now let's unpack this for a second. In Genesis 3, there's no hope for fallen man apart from the shedding of human blood. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to have to be bloodshed to restore man because of the fall. From the beginning... The writing of Adam's moral failure, his covenant violation results in a promise of bloodshed that will, in fact, restore humankind. All later animal sacrifice is substitutionary, animals substituted for humans, animal sacrifice is a metaphor, animals die in the place of sinners. This is even true of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, I like Nick Wilson's uh, ch- children's book because the animals that God slaughters are unicorns. That's why there's no unicorns. Ha ha. I don't think it was unicorns. <laughs> I think it's just a little artistic, you know, license. But the point is, Adam and Eve are ashamed, right? They were ashamed because of their sin. And God covers their sin by doing what? Killing an animal. Because if he kills the first man and woman, there are no more men and women. So right out of the gate, he's got to come up with some other way to, to represent the death of these people, which they rightfully deserve because of the sins they have committed. And right in Genesis, we see there's a substitute. Okay, well, I can't kill you. I have, you have to help me get to the point where we can bring a guy who, who I can kill for this purpose. And so what I'm going to do is kill this animal instead. Leviticus 1.4, the sinner shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. You lay your hands on the animal, and and what you do is you transfer your sin and your identity to the animal, and that is what gets chopped up, and that's what gets burned up. Every single animal sacrifice is a person. 
When a worshiper brought an animal before Yahweh, there was a transference, a laying on of hands that substituted the animal for the sinner. This is called vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement. And, and, and what it's setting us up is that there is, in fact, in the end, someone who is sacrificed on our behalf. And it's not an animal, it's a man. Right? So substitutionary sacrifice to cover sin is there again and again and again and again in the Old Testament. But it's always about human beings. Okay, Genesis chapter 22, verse 13 to 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You ever, right? You're reading Genesis, and all, all this stuff goes on, and then all of a sudden, Isaac comes along, and you're like, oh, Abraham, you finally got your kid. That's great. And next thing you know, God's like, hey, take him up on a mountain and slit his throat. And you think, how, what is this pagan? This is why people struggle with Genesis. That sounds very mythological. sounds very pagan. And then right before he's about to do it, God's like, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I got this other, I got another ram. I have a substitute. Wink, wink. I will provide one. Right? Oh, your, your promised son, your beloved son. Don't worry. Don't worry. I got this. And, and these kinds of things happen over and over and over again to clue us in to what is actually going to happen in the future. The Gibeonite, the Gibeonite demand, then puts David in a, in a serious conflict of his own because he covenanted with Jonathan not to harm John, uh, Jonathan's children if Jonathan were to die. And so what we see is that David offers up these other children, but he keeps the covenant that he made with Jonathan, unlike Saul, breaking the covenant that they made with the Gibeonites. And, and, and so here you have these, this massive story being told about animal sacrifice and how it's really humans, and there's a son that's going to come, who's going to die in our place. You have all this meta-narrative going on. But then even right here, you see again, what is a true Israelite king supposed to be like? He's supposed to be one who keeps his promises. Now, there still needs to be closure. Okay? They, they took them there, and they hung them in public, but the curse is not yet lifted. There's a, the curse isn't it's not over. We go on and read in 2 Samuel, starting verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-Shon, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa, and he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land. Now, why? Why not, after they are, are the, the men who are offered in sacrifice, after they die, why isn't it all taken care of? Well, oddly enough, the men who were hanged, in order to lift a curse, have themselves become a curse. Now, this is what I mean. 
when you, when you hang a man on a tree for, for doing something you ought not, what you are not supposed to do is leave him hanging there. So the Gibeonites are following the law of God. They tell David, this is what we need to do to atone for, the, for, this, for these sins and restore the land. But then they violate, in fact, the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a, changed man, a, a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, isn't this just like man? Isn't this just like all of us? God tells us exactly what we need to do to clean the land, and we go and do it, and by doing it, we actually bring another curse. They, they left them hanging there. And that itself brings a curse on the land. Okay? You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So as they're trying to clean up their mess, they make another mess. The men who are supposed to be hanged to lift a curse themselves become a curse. Does that sound like anything to you? Do you recall that language anywhere? Galatians three thirteen to 14. Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was hung on the cross in order to lift a curse and himself became a curse. These men are hung on, a tr- on trees to lift a curse and themselves become a curse. That's why it does, right? they just transferred one curse for another. And let me tell you how often people that I watch in real time do the exact same thing. Oh my goodness, look at this mess I made. Let me clean it up by making a different mess. Does that sound like anyone you know? I, I wish in these particular moments we had a giant mirror because it should remind you of you. <laughs> How often do you think, I'm going to fix this, I know what to do, and by doing that, you actually make a different problem? And, and, and what this whole story at the end here tells me, right? what it should tell us, what it should reveal to us, is how incompetent we are, even with instruction... <laughs> to appease the wrath of God. Because what happens is we start to think we have it figured out. We start to think, no, 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 I've, I've gotten here by the power of my sanctified wisdom. Okay, I read the law. I know exactly what to do. And I'm going to go and fulfill it. And by going and fulfilling it, I make a bigger mess. And later I'm like, well, gee, what happened? Maybe it's because you were arrogant and you thought you were doing it under your own, in your own wisdom, your own power, your own strength. Now, this is just one foreshadowing moment here. The men hung on the tree to lift a curse themselves become a curse, and it's not until that is dealt with that the land is restored. And David didn't really follow, follow up. He handed these guys over to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites hang them there. They should have buried them right away, but they didn't. And David is thinking to himself as he's looking upon Saul's concubine, you know what? Look at the way she's honoring these guys. And and these guys, though they sinned, though they were put to death for sin, actually should not just be left in this fashion because it's inhumane. And because we think sin causes, right, what sin causes us to do is to become inhumane. The inhumanity of sin causes us to be inhumane. Now, I I don't suggest anyone watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, but there is one that he made called Inglorious Bastards. And and I've never watched it because I have a, a moral compass, (laughs) <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
But I've been told by my friends who have watched it who are secularists. They say, you know what happens is this weird thing about halfway through the movie is what you want them to do is murder and kill and destroy every Nazi in the worst conceivable way that they can. And I ask in my philosophical and Socratic way, hmm, does, so what do you think, you're saying that, so like if, if you were a Nazi, you would yourself become a Nazi, right? If you were living at that time, you're, you're not so morally <laughs> upright that you wouldn't succumb to the, the temptation to be as cruel and vile to the people you think deserve it. Because the Gibeonites say, okay, these guys deserve to die, but they don't just let them die, they treat them in this inhumane fashion. And what happens in, when sin, the inhumanity of sin causes us to be inhumane towards other people, right? And so there, there all these moviegoers are, watching a movie about Nazis who were terrible and inhumane, and all they want is them to be treated as inhumanely as possible. Because why? Because the people we don't think deserve grace and goodness, those people that we don't think deserve to be honored, those people who we think have, have committed sins and they ought to be punished, we treat them not just with justice, but with inhumanity. And it is something that we do again and again and again, right? And it goes back to the start of the story, right? Who, the Gibeonites living in their midst should not just be treated whatever way you want because you're zealous for the people of God. And now the Gibeonites are doing the thing that was done to them. And this is what happens to people. Because of lawlessness, it says in the Gospels, our love grows cold. And so the Gibeonites go too far. Saul went too far. Men go too far because they think that what they're doing is righteous and good. And even when we have real justice in our hands, how, how tempting is it to go too far? And so when we're talking about, when we're engaged in the war that we're engaged in, how often do we commit war crimes of thought, of heart, of attitude? How often does our zeal for justice and righteousness and the Lord carry us away? And what we end up doing is becoming inhumane, like the Gibeonites, like Saul. David sees what she does, and he says, you know what? These men, even Saul, we ought to honor them. We ought to bury them, right? He doesn't keep them outside the land. He takes them to the tombs of their fathers and lays them to rest where they belong. Because even, even for people who deserve to be punished for their sins, even though people who have done wickedly still deserve to be treated like human beings. And that's what the law in Deuteronomy was about. Don't don't, even when you have a thief, even when you have a murderer, don't treat him in, within, as inhumane. Because we will do it. We will do it. Especially those vile people who we ourselves think are so inhumane. Right? If we, <laughs> imagine what you would say or do if you had an, like you sat down with a doctor. Okay, and he's like, yeah, I've performed about 4,500 abortions. Wouldn't you want something really horrible to happen to him? Right? And you wouldn't do it. But you think, good God, can somebody just stab you on your way home? Can't something just happen to you where we get some justice? And, and, we, and we hear, I, I've heard plenty of times in my, myself, something terrible befalls somebody who deserves it. And I think, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's just it. That's not. It's not. 
Now, it is not until David honors these men that God lifts the curse. Right? So you go to the Gospels, and what happens? Jesus is put on, hung on a tree. He becomes a curse. He says that it's finished. He takes away the sins of the world. He's laid in a tomb. He's raised from the tomb. He walks about, making sure that there's plenty of eyewitnesses to tell everyone that he actually didn't die, or, or stay dead, I mean. Sorry, no, no, I don't want to introduce some heresy right here at the end. He died. He didn't stay dead. And then he ascends, and then seven days later, when he's honored, once he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, then the heavens are opened and the Holy Spirit pours forth, just as the rain poured forth on Israel because, of the, because, God, because David finally honored the bones of the dead men. It wasn't until he bestowed honor upon them that God opened the heavens and poured down rain. It wasn't until Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, glorified and honored, that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit rained down upon us. Now, I will call that the typological tall weeds. But think about how, metaphorically how it works. What is the story that God cannot help telling again and again and over and over? He wants you to understand. There will be blood. There will. There will be conflict. There will be wars. It, but you have to fight them a particular way, right? The land is suffering. There, do, there, there must be blood in order to atone. And, and don't worry, though. There is a son who is coming. His blood is sufficient. He will be glorified to my right hand. And he will take away the sins of the world. He will restore man to the Lord God. And, and he will right all wrongs. He will take away all tears. He will right every single wrong. It will be nothing but empty tombs by the time he's done. It will be nothing but little bugs and frogs swimming together in a pond. It'll be nothing but us and all the unbelievers, right, from all these other nations who don't know God now. All the nations will be represented. Jesus will, in fact, win. And this is the, the conclusion of David's life. The conclusion of this book about David is about what? Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's about the fact that bloodshed is the thing that restored us. It's, and how often do we come here and we, and we forget this fact? At the center of our being here, the, the center of our being, the center of our community, the center of our righteousness is the blood of a man. Because you sinned. And even though your sin was not like Adam's, you deserve the wrath of God just as much. And, and the curse has befallen us. And we say, well, what are we supposed to do about this? God says, well, here's what we do. We'll take a man and we'll hang him on a tree and, and that will alleviate the sin. And then what I will do is open the heavens and we'll pour forth the blessing of God, like rain on the dry ground. And you're like, oh man, I'm nervous now. What guy? What guy that has to be offered up in that story? And God's like, no, 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 I got it. <laughs> I have a son. There will be a substitute. Right? You're, you're, I, I want you to be redeemed, but you're not even good enough to redeem yourself, let alone redeem anyone else. And so Jesus comes into the world, and he lives a righteous and perfect life, and is slaughtered on your behalf. 
His blood is offered up to the living God, and his wrath is turned away from you, and, now, and, and the heavens are opened, and the Spirit descends, and now you are children of the living God. Your dry bones have been given water. You are now a fertile field, and God is working and moving in you to continue the process over and over and over and over again. And this is what the, the book of Samuel is about, because it's what all the books in the Bible are about. Right? It, it gets, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes through this whole series, I'm like, this is weird stuff. <laughs> I don't really understand culturally. I, I, right? You get really lost in current events and trying to compare things and contrast things. And what I like here at the end is they're like, let me put it in black and white. This whole thing is about the fact that a man must die in order to save you from the wrath of God. And we know the end of the story. We know that it is, in fact, Jesus, right? It's not all the things that we do, from educating our children to, to showing up to work on time to loving our wives, love, honoring and respecting our husbands, right? The food that we make, the festivities. That, the point of all of it is that we would be, what? The, the redeemed of the Lord. That we would go forth and tell the story. Listen, listen, right? The you go out into the world and you say, listen, yes, there is a curse upon the land. There is. And, and, you're, and you're trying all these ways to lift it. But it's been lifted. It's being lifted. It will be lifted for eternity. Because there was a man whose blood was offered. And that is our message. That's who we are. That is what our culture is supposed to be. And we see here in the life of David and the life of Jesus that we go about right, proclaiming this Lord, proclaiming this good news in, in a particular way. We have to be mindful not just to do it, but how we're doing it. And too often we're not doing it, and too often we're not doing it in the right way. And, and so we come back to the story and we hear it again <laughs> so that we can go forth this week and in the power of what we've heard, Obey the Lord God. Apply the blood of Christ to more and more areas of our lives. Bring more and more of it under his dominion, under his control, more thoughts captive to him, more of our hearts, more of ourselves, more of our world under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what this story is about, and that's what David's life was all about. And I pray that at the end of your life, when they're writing the epilogue, it begins with exactly the same story. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the substitutionary atonement of Christ on our behalf. We thank you for his blood that cleanses us and the land. Lord, we pray that we would go from here and we would be gracious and upright to the Gibeonites, that we would be just, that our zeal for your people, Lord, would not cause us to build our own kingdoms, but that we would remember the Lord Jesus, not only that he fought on our behalf, but how he fought. And I pray that we would go from here and we would imitate him and we would honor him and we would obey him and we would live our lives just as he lived his. In his name we pray and amen.